Hi, everybody. Welcome to the first episode of the Hearts of the Fathers podcast, where we tell the stories of pioneers and pioneer ancestors, and then we connect those stories to living descendants and relatives. I am your host, Derek Rowley. Now, this podcast is truly amateur night. I mean, I write, edit, produce, record this thing, and I don't really have any experience or qualifications to do it. So thanks for listening. I really hope to get better as I go, and hopefully I get a little faster at production. But if you like what you hear, you can really help me out, but I need you to be proactive about it. First, and this is the biggest thing, go to iTunes and leave a review telling other people about what you think about the episode. Hopefully it's good. There are a lot of podcasts out there, and the best way that you can help others find this podcast is by giving it a great review. That has a big impact on where it shows in the podcast rankings. Uh, You can also share this podcast with your friends on Facebook and Twitter, which should really help. The podcast has its own webpage. You can go to heartsofthefatherspodcast.com. It's all one word. And there you can find the show notes to each episode where we link to a lot of other resources and detail that we can't fit into the show. There's also a link to a Patreon account if you feel so inclined to give the podcast any financial support. That would really be appreciated. Season 1 of Hearts of the Fathers tells the stories of 12 different handcart pioneers who were among the 3,000 or so people who emigrated from Iowa to the Salt Lake Valley in one of 10 handcart companies between 1856 and 1860. These pioneers walked 1,300 miles carrying all their possessions, all 17 pounds worth, in handmade handcarts that were typically built from green, uncured lumber. Back in October of 1855, The First Presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints issued the 13th General Epistle dealing with the immigration of British and European converts. Cost was a big issue, and in the epistle, the Perpetual Emigrating Fund was announced, which was designed to provide a way for even the poorest of the Latter-day Saint converts to come to Zion. Let them come on foot with handcarts or wheelbarrows, the epistle said, although I don't know anybody tried wheelbarrows. The Perpetual Emigrating Fund Company was a corporation established by the church in 1849 to provide assistance by way of both church assets and private donations to help more than 30,000 converts move west. Because the funds were limited, the converts qualified for their assistance by having useful skills and by the duration of their church membership. The perpetual part of the fund required that once converts were established in their new communities, they were expected to repay the company, usually in labor or commodities, with the cost of their trip. This way, others could also afford to receive help later. In episode one, we tell the story of Edmund Ellsworth, the captain of the first handcart company to make the trip. We were talking about them in, in the car, and my kids were talking about how many wives did he have? Right, right. <laughs> we had a lot of fun reading about different Marianne's that he had married. He's married three Marianne's. It's fun to realize that life was a little different back then, but people still stayed the same. That we're all still trying to do the best we can in the best way we can and realize, realizing through our connection to God and our closeness to God is, is what makes it happy and successful. Edmund Lovell Ellsworth was born July 1st, 1819, near the town of Paris, Oneida County, New York. 
Paris, New York is located about 10 miles south of Utica and 115 miles east of Palmyra, New York, the birthplace of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Paris was founded in 1789 and named after a merchant from Fort Plain who won over the hearts of the locals during the severe winter of 1788 and 89 by generously providing them with all the essential supplies on liberal credit while taking repayment in whatever produce the residents could supply when they could supply it. This occurred during the same harsh year that famine in Europe triggered the French Revolution. His name was Isaac Paris. The major employers in Paris were the Empire Woolen Company, which made 150,000 yards of fancy cashmere annually. There was a steam-powered gristmill, two manufacturers of agriculture equipment, and the Paris Furnace Company. The residents of Paris included many patriots of the American Revolution, and they were described in the annals of Oneida County as a sober, moral, religious, and industrious people, and their social life seems to be centered around the Paris Hill Church, a small Episcopalian church formed by five members, as was required at the time under New York law. Reverend Eliphalet Steele was the pastor of the church, and he was known to be a very orthodox, plain-spoken man. He was described actually as having what they called the savor of bluntness to his speech. There is a story of a young preacher arranged by the Oneida Association, which was a utopian community that believed that Christ had already returned, and they were responsible to bring about the millennial kingdom themselves, which required perfection not just in heaven but also on earth. And it also included some other interesting practices like group marriage, for example. In any event, Reverend Steele heard this young preacher teach what he felt to be questionable doctrine, and he admonished the young preacher by telling him this. He said, I'll do my best preacher imitation. I, young man, you do not know more than half as much as I do, and I do not know more than half as much as I think I do. The United community eventually dissolved, and they became the giant manufacturer of tableware and cutlery that we know today. By 1835, the locals seemed to think that the community had begun to become somewhat crime-ridden, at least according to the history. There was burglary, counterfeiting, shoplifting, and a variety of other petty crimes that were being commonly committed by groups of young men roaming around the streets. At this time, Edmund would have been about 16 years old. Hello? Looking for Derek Crowley. You have me. This must be Jody. Oh, hi. <laughs> yes, sorry. How are you? Good. How about you? I'm well, thanks. My full name is Jody K. Bahannon, but it was Ellsworth. <laughs> um, so my married name is Bahannon, but I was an Ellsworth. My dad is an Ellsworth. And my dad is Jeff Ellsworth. And my grandfather is Harry Lynn Ellsworth. And my great-grandfather is Lloyd H. Ellsworth. And then his father is Harry Ellsworth. And then his father is Edmund Lovell Ellsworth. So I wanted to ask you, what is the first memory that you have about learning about your, her- your pioneer heritage through Edmund Ellsworth? And how did that happen? My mother has always been really um, involved in genealogy. And I remember one year she made us, when we were kids, she made all of us, I'm one of seven, and she made us all a binder. And it was before the days of 
printing out pictures easily. Right. So she cut by hand just hundreds and hundreds of pictures of my ancestors. And I remember coming across Edmund Lovell and reading in, I think it was even a friend magazine printout or something that they had printed about him being the first handcart company. Oh, cool. And I just thought that was the greatest thing. And it was so fun to just discover, I don't know, my great, great, great grandfather. Let's talk about Edmund's family for a moment. Edmund's father, Jonathan, was a carpenter and a tradesman. When he was 33 years old, Jonathan went with his brother up the St. Lawrence River to Quebec, Canada to bring down a raft of lumber for his trade, while his wife, Sarah Galley, who was only 19 at the time and pregnant with Edmund, stayed behind. Shortly afterwards, they received a letter from Edmund's uncle reporting that Jonathan had apparently died of yellow fever. And to make matters worse, the uncle was claiming that Jonathan had, in his dying moments, mysteriously and unexpectedly willed all of his property, most of which was attractive development land in Paris, to his brother. According to family records, the uncle never produced any documentation for any of this. It was all based on his word alone. At this time, Sarah Galley Edmund suddenly found herself to be the young, widowed, destitute mother of newborn Edmund. Going back in history, the Ellsworth family appears to come from Cambridgeshire, England. The family arrived in America around 1646 when John Ellsworth, a captain in the English Navy, settled in Windsor, Connecticut. His brothers emigrated also and settled in Rhode Island and New York. These brothers all established prominent and highly respected families. In fact, Edmund Ellsworth was second cousin twice removed to Oliver Ellsworth, who was one of the framers of the U.S. Constitution. He was also a U.S. envoy to France and served as the United States Senator from Connecticut. He was also the third Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, having been nominated by George Washington. Israel Ellsworth, Edmund's grandfather, was a sergeant and captain in the Continental Green Mountain Boys during the Revolutionary War, serving in Virginia and Vermont. Edmund's maternal grandparents were James Galley, who was born in the small fishing village of Gamry, Scotland, now known as Gardenstown and Rebecca Hall, who came from a long line of Rhode Islanders. So, let's go back to Edmund's life. Oh, don't ask me that. (laughs) I don't know a ton. That's okay. I just know that he came with a lot of the immigrants. In 1822, Edmund's mother, Sarah, now almost 22 years old, remarried to a man named Thomas Merritt, who only lived a couple of years before dying in 1824 of what they called dropsy, what we might now call congestive heart failure. Edmund was about five years old at the time. Four years later, in 1828, Sarah again remarried to a man named Abraham Hendrickson, who was evidently a very stern man. She would have been about 27 years old, and Edmund would have been about nine at the time. We don't know much about the relationship between Abraham and Sarah, but Edmund's relationship with his stepfather was probably described as poor. And here's an example of that. A year or two into their marriage, Edmund, along with several other boys, went into town to have some fun and maybe cause a little trouble. Seeing the small mob of boys coming into a store, one of the merchants quickly hit a box of shoe buckles, which was a popular accessory at the time, because he was afraid that they might suddenly disappear into the boys' pockets, never to be seen again. According to the story, later the merchant realized the buckles were missing and perhaps forgot that he had hidden them. 
So he angrily visited the homes of all the boys, making accusations and searching for his missing shoe buckles. Edmund's home was the last one he visited. So in the presence of his stepfather, Edmund stood accused of being a thief, but Edmund stiffly proclaimed his innocence. Apparently, Edmund's stepfather didn't believe him, and after the shopkeeper left, Abraham took Edmund out to the dusty woodshed and savagely whipped him until his back was striped with bleeding welts. Finally, his mother interceded and took her son in her arms, telling her husband that if he whipped the boy more, he would have to strike her first. She took the boy to the house and nursed his wounds, but within hours, Edmund disappeared. Abraham apparently thought the boy had gone into the woods and died. Instead, Edmund had gone to the home of a neighbor a mile or two away who were kind and they made a home for him there. Edmund's mother knew where he was, but the secret was apparently kept from Abraham. Edmund's resentment towards Hendrickson left deep physical and emotional scars. In time, he left the area completely and traveled down the Mississippi River as a day laborer, but vowed his revenge on Hendrickson for the abuse he suffered. When he was about 19 or 20 years old, Edmund received a letter from his mother telling him that she and her husband had joined a new church called the Latter-day Saints, or Mormons. Edmund, who had not strayed far from his religious upbringing, had heard a lot of rumors about the Mormons from the people he met traveling up and down the Mississippi, and none of it was good. So, fearing that his mother was making a serious mistake that could risk not only her temporal welfare, but also her spiritual salvation, he said he felt it was his duty to try and save his mother from this delusion. Edmund immediately left to his mother's home to deal with the problem, but he decided that he should take a quick detour to go on a fact-finding mission about the Mormons on his way. It would come in handy, he thought, when he had to have the hard conversation with his mother that was coming. So, Edmund traveled to Palmyra, the birthplace of the church and formerly Joseph Smith's hometown, to conduct his research. Of this expedition, Edmund later wrote, I took all pains to collect all the evidence that I could against the people. Instead of obtaining anything against them, I found much in their favor. When I arrived home, I learned the truth relative to the gospel. When Edmund arrived at his mother's home, Abraham Hendrickson was away on errands. While celebrating his reunion with his mother, Edmund looked out the window and down the road, he saw Hendrickson on a horse coming up to the house. Edmund, now a strapping, powerfully built man, stopped cold and went out to meet him. Are you Abraham Hendrickson? He demanded. Get off the horse. I'm going to give you a beating like you gave me. Abraham was shocked to find himself face to face with Edmund. Was it a ghost that had come to haunt him? After all, he had thought Edmund to be dead. But no, Edmund was very much alive. Very much alive and angry. Abraham slid slowly from the horse and fell to his knees, pleading with Edmund for mercy. For a long moment, nothing happened. Sarah, watching silently from the house, whispered a quick prayer. I could not punish him, Edmund later wrote in his journal. The years of bitter resentment dissolved in a single act of mercy and grace. Together, reconciled at long last, they walked into the house. There, over the coming days and weeks, Edmund learned from his mother and stepfather about the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, the Book of Mormon, the prophet Joseph Smith, and the gathering of the saints. 
On February 20th, 1841, Edmund was baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints by Lyman Heath, along with his sister Charlotte and her husband, William Cogswell. Seven months after joining the church, Edmund traveled with Mr. and Mrs. Marcellus Bates to Nauvoo, arriving there on October 7th, 1841. Edmund promptly joined the elders' quorum and immediately went to work at the temple quarry where he spent the winter of 1841. While in Nauvoo, Edmund met Elizabeth Young, a beautiful, clear-eyed, and strong-willed young woman who also happened to be the eldest daughter of Brigham Young. They were married on July 10, 1842, and Edmund was rebaptized and reconfirmed by the Prophet Joseph Smith himself, something that wasn't uncommon at the time. In August of that year, Edmund was ordained to the office of 70 by Elizabeth's brother, Joseph Young, and went to work for William Law for the next year running a sawmill. Elizabeth gave birth to their first child, Charlotte, on July 1, 1843. The following spring, Nauvoo had grown to be the second most populous city in Illinois with over 12,000 residents. But the persecution of the Latter-day Saints in and around Nauvoo was running rampant, outpacing even the growth of the city. Edmund was called by Joseph Smith to go with about 20 other men on an expedition to the Rocky Mountains. They were to explore the possibilities of finding a suitable permanent settlement for the Saints. Meanwhile, in 1844, Joseph Smith was campaigning for President of the United States along with his vice presidential running mate, Sidney Rigdon, with the election scheduled for November 1st through December 4th of that year. The April General Conference of the Church coincided with Edmund's return from the West, and he, along with many others, including Wilford Woodruff, Franklin D. Richards, Heber C. Kimball, and others, were called on electioneering missions to campaign for the prophet. Edmund was sent back to New York, where he combined campaigning with preaching, proselytizing, and visiting members. While in New York, he received a letter from his father-in-law, Brigham Young, telling him that Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram had been murdered by a mob in Carthage, Illinois. The campaign was over, and Edmund was called home. Edmund was present at the meeting in Nauvoo on August 8, 1844, where the members voted to determine who had the right and responsibility to lead the church. The choices were, on the one hand, Sidney Rigdon, the first counselor in the first presidency, who had claimed to receive a revelation appointing him as guardian of the church. Or, on the other hand, the Quorum of the Twelve, who, as a quorum, had been given all the keys of the priesthood. Many of the quorum members were still scattered in Europe, with Brigham Young, who had just returned from his mission, at their head. Rigdon and Young both spoke to the assembled church. Brigham disputed Sidney's claim to be the protector of the church and claimed that Rigdon had been estranged from Joseph Smith for some time. In the course of two meetings held that day, many in attendance received a divine witness that the Quorum of the Twelve, led by Brigham Young, should lead them. Many of the saints in attendance later said that they witnessed a remarkable transformation in Brigham as he spoke. For many, he took on the appearance, demeanor, and speech patterns of the beloved prophet Joseph. Of this event, Edmund wrote, I plainly saw the mantle of priesthood fall upon President Young with its power and spirit. The citizens of the region became increasingly afraid of and uncomfortable with the growing economic, political, and religious presence of the Latter-day Saints, and increasingly saw the Mormons as a threat. 
Meanwhile, Illinois Governor Thomas Ford was sending troops into Nauvoo to enforce arrest warrants against the Saints. All of this culminated in a toxic environment of threats towards the people and the temple and increased mobbing of the saints. Edmund called it a spirit of jealousy. Under the direction of Brigham Young, the saints went to work, as Edmund described as one, to complete the temple as quickly as possible. In poverty, we watched and worked and prayed. Convinced that the Mormons would never find peace in the United States, Brigham Young made the bold decision to follow through on Joseph Smith's plan to move the saints to the wild territories of the Mexican-controlled Southwest before the attacks against the saints spiraled out of control. Instead of leaving in the spring, the departures began in winter. There were about 35 70s quorums organized and assigned for this purpose. Although Brigham had little knowledge of the geography and environment of the West, Edmund certainly did. His experience on the exploratory expedition four years earlier had prepared him well for this task. Trusting in God, Edmund and the others began to prepare the people of Nauvoo for a mass exodus on a scale that perhaps had not been attempted since the Israelites left Egypt. The winter exodus began on February 4th, and for three weeks, nearly 500 wagons carried and ferried about 3,000 across the Mississippi River. At first, the wagons ferried the river, but the temperatures plummeted to sub-zero, and the river froze over, allowing many to cross over the top of the river on the frozen surface. They traveled only seven miles at first to a temporary refuge along Sugar Creek in Iowa, where the campfires burned so constantly that one pioneer recorded that when the wind blows, one can hardly get to the fire for the smoke. In early March, after about a month on the trail west, the Saints made an extended stop at Richardson's Point, located 22 miles west of Bonaparte, Iowa. There, Edmund's close friend Edwin Little, the son of Susan Stilson, died. This was a tremendous loss to Edmund and a cause for great personal mourning. Brigham had planned to make the westward trek in stages, and he determined that the first major stopping point would be along the Missouri River opposite Council Bluffs, Iowa. He sent out a reconnaissance team to plan the route across Iowa, dig wells at camping spots, and in some cases plant corn to provide food for the hungry immigrants. The mass of Mormons made the journey to the Missouri River, and by the fall of 1846, the winter quarters were home to 12,000 Mormons. Brigham Young sent Edmund back to Nauvoo with a span of horses and a carriage to trade for oxen and wagon, as well as to acquire many things that were needed in camp. Edmund wrote that he was greatly blessed in obtaining everything he had been sent for, including bringing Brigham's wife Harriet Cook back to camp. When he arrived in camp, he reported that he was shaking with og, which was a malaria-like fever. Soon, however, Edmund recovered and was helping mow the winter hay. In the winter of 1846 and 1847, Edmund was put in charge of the cattle that belonged to President Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball. He traveled over 100 miles up the Missouri River to deliver them to a Mr. Lathrop, who took them from there. While he was there, Edmund went hunting for wild turkey, reporting that he shot over 40 wild turkey by moonlight off of the trees where they roosted. Entertainment and social life was always important to the saints, and it was certainly an important part of keeping their spirits up in winter quarters. 
At the instruction of Brigham Young, Edmund, along with William Pitt, James Smithers, and James Standing, reorganized the Nauvoo Brass Band, which had stayed together as far as Garden Grove before it fragmented among the various traveling parties west. During that difficult winter, the band played at dances up to six times a week. When the Vanguard Company left for the Salt Lake Valley in the spring of 1847, Edmund was part of the company. He reported that upon arriving at the banks of the Platte River, they were so short on supplies that they had to cut bark off of the cottonwood trees in order to feed the horses. At Fort Laramie, they crossed the Platte River, and they went through the Black Hills to the upper crossing of the river, only to find that the river was so swollen that they couldn't ford across it. So Edmund and others found some timber and hewed out three large canoes, which they then lashed together to form the base of a ferry boat that could carry the wagons across the river. By the time they finished ferrying the Saints' wagons across, other immigrants on the Oregon Trail began to arrive. So Brigham appointed Edmund and nine other men to stay and operate the ferry and collect the toll with the promise that they would share equally in the honors and accomplishments of the mission with those that went ahead into the Salt Lake Valley. These ten men expected to stay with the ferry until their families arrived, hopefully within two weeks. In the meantime, they operated the ferry in exchange for flour, bacon, and other supplies that were collected and stored for the saints that would follow them on the journey west. We soon arranged that a part of both groups should start back to meet our families while the rest remained to maintain the camp. No one thought that we would be gone more than up to five days. We took provisions to last only three days. When we arrived at Fort Laramie, the Indians reported that wagons were coming up the Platte, but they gave us no idea of the distance to them. Provisions could not be purchased, so we traveled on for 175 miles with only one antelope and one rabbit for the entire company. This amounted to less than one half of a meal for each of us in seven days. I never expected to witness greater excitement than prevailed when we beheld at a distance a group of wagons camped for the Sabbath. Our horses did their best to carry us on to breakfast where several of us found our families. Truly, my soul was filled with joy at meeting my wife and two little ones in company with the saints moving to the Salt Lake Valley. That night, Indians stole 52 head of horses from the company. Edmund and his family finally arrived in the Salt Lake Valley on October 12, 1847. Hi, it's Derek here again, and I want to introduce you to the Sons of the Utah Pioneers. SUP is a terrific organization that dates back to 1928. It's a nonprofit organization that's dedicated to preserving the memory and the heritage of early pioneers, as well as honoring modern-day pioneers around the world. SUP has over 2,000 members in 47 local chapters in Utah, Idaho, Arizona, California, and Pennsylvania. The website for SUP is sup1847.com, so check that out. Now, I've been a member of SUP since 2013, and I love it. I am a bit of a history buff, and I come from a long line of pioneer ancestors. I mean, I'll talk more about them in some future episodes. That's one of the perks of doing my own podcast. But the reason I decided to do this podcast at all is to try to spread the message of SUP. So while you're listening to this podcast... 
Why don't you check out the webpage for the SUP Online chapter? You can see that at suponline.org. That's suponline.org, all one word. There you'll find a boatload of historic resources, stories, and videos with fresh new material several times a week, along with forums, a growing database of historic sites and markers, and a whole lot more. Those of you who are into pioneer history, you'll love it, and I think the rest of you will like it too. Now, my favorite thing about belonging to SUP is that membership includes a subscription to Pioneer Magazine. Pioneer is published each quarter, and it is beautifully written and beautifully produced. We're putting decades of Pioneer Magazine articles on SUPonline.org, which really makes online membership to SUP worthwhile. So check it out and think about joining. We'd love to have you. Life in the Salt Lake Valley was certainly not easy. Provisions were scarce, and they were poorly equipped for winter at 4,300 feet above sea level. Edmund planted crops the following spring, only to find that the first frost wiped out the harvest in early September. He described their home as a shanty, and Charlotte, now five years old, froze her feet, causing her a great deal of pain. So do you have any, you know, family stories about Edmund Ellsworth that you, that you know of or remember that you could share? Let me just think. Um, i trying to remember because my, the stories that we've asked my grandfather, my great-grandfather is still alive. Okay. No, my grandfather, excuse me, my grandfather, he's in his 80s. And, but the stories he tells are of his father and his, and his grandfather. So it doesn't quite go back that far. Okay. So the stories that we know of, we've read through Family Search or online. I haven't heard them passed down through my family, actually. So I found them out. I, with my kids, it was a big deal for me to pass on stories about their ancestors. And we had a long drive to school um, a few years ago. And so I would dig up a story and I would pass my phone to my son but <laughs> I would have him read us stories about my grandfather and about any of our any of our ancestors that we could find a story on we'd read one in the morning and then we'd say okay how can we be like Grandpa Ellsworth and they would say oh we can be brave like he did by doing this. I was always impressed doing the you know reading about the stories that I that I have found about how Edmund Ellsworth seems to have been such a... Of course, he was a son-in-law, right, to, to Brigham Young. Right, and, yeah, his first wife. And he seems to be such a trusted right hand to Brigham Young that whenever Brigham Young really needs to have something done of importance, that, that Edmund is clearly on the short list. Yeah, well, that is pretty neat. And he was, seemed to be willing to accept the assignment when he was called... Eventually, Brigham Young asked Edmund to build a home for himself and his family and live near the Young home on the hill in Salt Lake, and so he did. During this time, Edmund was involved in many of the Indian skirmishes that occurred during this period. He served under the command of General Daniel H. Wells, who was leader of the remnant of the Nauvoo Legion. He was involved in the notorious and controversial Battle of Fort Utah. Although there's a lot more to the story than I want to get into here, it could be a 
completely separate podcast episode by itself. But you can Google the Battle of Fort Utah and read all about it. Historians think that somewhere between 30 and 100 Timpanogos Indians were killed, and there were some very troubling aspects to the story and the events leading up to it. It's one of those sad and tragic episodes in Utah history that's difficult for us to understand why and how it happened. In any event, Edmund was there and he was injured on the fifth and bloodiest day of the battle. After the Battle of Fort Utah, the problems with the Indians eased up for a while, allowing the Saints to establish settlements in the areas of Provo, Orem, Linden, and Pleasant Grove. They planted crops on all the land that they could water, even though, just as today, water was a very scarce resource. Over time, they learned how to raise crops in the climate of the Wasatch Front, and food became more abundant. In 1852, Brigham Young called Edmund and five young men to open the North Fork of Emigration Canyon for lumber operations, which he did until the onset of winter. In the fall of that year, at least according to Edmund's account, there was an accident at home, and his oldest daughter, Charlotte, was tragically killed in a fire. However, the records on family search show that her death occurred on Christmas Eve of 1853, which possibly, and I'm speculating here, connects the deadly fire with either a family Christmas celebration or possibly an anniversary celebration, because that date was also the first anniversary of Edmund's marriage to his second wife, Marianne Dudley, in a marriage that was performed by Brigham Young himself. Can you think of any experiences back going through your the line of grandfathers, you know, back to and including Edmund, where they had experiences that had a real impact on your life? Yeah. Like I was mentioning my grandpa, let's see, so it's my my dad's dad's dad. So anyway, he he fell on a power line when he was sixteen and he lost the the town got to, he was burned really, really badly and they just the town actually got up a petition and said let him die. <laughs> Please don't don't let him live. And he was so determined and so I don't know if the word is ornery or stubborn, <laughs> but he was determined to live. And he did. And he went on to do really amazing things. He could rope cattle and saddle a horse and he could do anything that anyone else could do. In fact I read several articles and things about him that said he could do them faster than normal people could. People with both arms and both legs. Wow. <laughs> and so that clearly to me, and my grandpa talks a lot about him still, and we ask him stories because we knew him so well and he's still alive. So it was fun. I mean, my grandfather's still alive, but his father was the one. And he was, in fact, one day he was um, on a tractor and he was taking the tractor from one place to another and his wife was behind in a car. But something happened and a car hit him um, while he was on the road and he fell off because he couldn't hold on as good and it gave him a, um, a brain injury and it became a little more hard and rough after that but the, just the tenacity and the, <laughs> the grit strength of that man really has gone down in our posterity it's something that my grandfather constantly talks about and that we constantly think about and I think that's a great story to my children too to pass on. On March 29, 1854, Edmund Ellsworth began his service as a missionary to England, a call that would be formally announced a week later at General Conference. It seems like, was he on his mission, I believe, when he 
had that vision and then he, was. he came across with the he came across with the saints and then ended up doing the handcart camp company after he came. Edmund's missionary companions on his journey to England included Franklin D. Richards of the Quorum of the Twelve, who had been called to preside over the mission in England, uh, George D. Grant, William Kimball, James A. Young, James A. Little, W.G. Young, Judge Reed, Frederick Hessler, and George Halliday. It took them three weeks of fording streams and wallowing through snowdrifts and mud to reach Fort Laramie, where they stayed for two days before continuing on. They finally arrived in Liverpool, England on June 3rd of 1854. On June 7th, he arrived in Herefordshire, where he was assigned to labor, staying in the home of Thomas Hewlett Shoemaker. The field was white all ready to harvest when these elders arrived in England, just as the words of revelation to Joseph Smith had predicted back in 1829. The Spirit of the Lord was poured out upon us with much profusion. By the end of June, he found himself in London, where he visited the Tower of London, the Crystal Palace, the Armory, Thames Tunnel, and the Monument to the Great Fire of London. By mid-July, he reported having baptized 50 new converts in Wales. On one occasion, Edmund was with a brother Giles, who was the president of the Welsh Monmouthshire Conference. The two missionaries stayed the night with a brother whose wife had apostatized from the church over the doctrine of plural marriage and was very bitter against the saints. When their supper was served, although Edmund was very hungry, his appetite abandoned him and he ate nothing. Although his companion, Brother Giles, made up the difference with enthusiasm. That night, Brother Giles woke Edmund groaning in agony. Edmund figured out that Brother Giles had been poisoned, so he made him take a swig from a bottle of consecrated oil, and then he laid his hands upon him and rebuked the poison. Brother Giles vomited and rose to his feet, and the pain left him immediately. Edmund wrote that the power of God was, quote, greatly manifested through my administration, close quote, and it was said that he had a special ability to heal a toothache, which resulted in many people being willing to be baptized. In April of 1855, the Deseret News newspaper published a letter he wrote to his family from the mission field. My dear family, I am happy to inform you that I am comfortably well although I've been afflicted with colds almost ever since I came to this country. The climate is so damp and foggy that it is almost impossible to keep clear of colds and asthmatic complaints. Yet, I am thankful that I have been able to travel and preach continually. I am happy to say that my labors are being blessed in this country, for many are being baptized into the church, and many who on account of plurality left the church when it first came out, are being baptized again into the church, and the saints are increasing in faith and good works. I am now comfortably clothed for the winter, and daily expecting to get an appointment in some other place, though I am now getting so well acquainted with this part that I am almost sorry to go away from here. But it will all be for the best. We have just been baptizing eight persons in this place, and I expect that we shall organize a branch here in a few weeks. Some of the people here heard Father preach in Keeson Street 15 years ago, and have been believing ever since, and some are still out of the church. Tell Father that I have the honor of preaching in some of the same houses 
and to the same people that he did in company with brothers Richards and Woodruff. For indeed, I feel it an honor and am trying to represent them the best I can. I am enjoying myself here just as well as is possible for any man under similar circumstances, and the time seems to be on the wings, for I can hardly see what has become of it. Since I came here, I have almost forgotten that I have a family, yet do not be jealous, for I will think of you when I have time, and forgive me, for I am about my master's business, and I have no time to think of anything else. I hope you will pray for me, that I may do a good work, and then be permitted to return again to you, for my heart sickens at the abominations of this land. Give me the home of the saints. Remember me kindly to all friends, and especially to father and my dear children. Yours truly, Edmund Ellsworth. one that comes to my mind is just the one where he had received image of the handcart and I remember Brigham Young calling him to be the first handcart company and he kind of knew it was coming mm-hmm. um, and then him taking them back west I think that I that that's such a great story because you know in the in the context of church service one of the very common stories that we hear repeated even today is when people have calls extended to them that they have had either some premonition or some feeling you know that the Lord was preparing them so that when the call came it was just a confirmation you know to them that, that they were really being called by the Lord the Lord let them know ahead of time Right, yeah, he knew, he knew it was coming. Kind of, he's kind of like, yep, I've seen that, and <laughs> we know what we're doing. Edmund obviously had a very close relationship with his father-in-law, Brigham Young, and seems to have been one of Brigham's most trusted associates. One of Edmund's missionary companions, an elder Galloway, wrote in his diary that he was awakened one night by Edmund, who told him that he dreamt a dream three times that night in which he was at home having a conversation with Brigham Young, who said to him, We're thinking of having a company of saints cross the plains next year with handcarts. We would like you to take care of the company. Will you do it? If you say so, I will. Elder Galloway told Edmund to write the experience in his journal to see what came of it, so he did. About six weeks later, Edmund received a letter from Brigham Young asking him the very same question using the very same words he'd recorded in his journal. Although handcart travel had never before been used as a method of immigrant transportation, Edmund began advocating it as an inexpensive method to allow the faithful poor to gather to Zion, and he began organizing the converts. At the same time, church leaders in Salt Lake were officially adopting the scheme to help bring perpetual immigration fund passengers into Salt Lake City. I just remember him also coming across on the Enoch train. I remember thinking that was kind of interesting. And I remember seeing the Enoch train at the Church History Museum up in Salt Lake and thinking, hey, that's, that's one that he came across on. <laughs> on March 21st of 1856, Edmund was released to return home. 
he left England aboard his ship Enoch Train, which was the first shipload of immigrants traveling under the Perpetual Immigration Fund that season. The ship sailed with 534 passengers, including 431 saints and returning missionaries, from March 23rd and arriving in Boston on May 1st. Edmund served as a member of the presidency of the company along with Elder James Ferguson and Daniel D. MacArthur. Passengers included missionaries returning from England, Switzerland, South Africa, Denmark, India, and Gibraltar. The saints were organized in five wards. There were a number of births on board and a few deaths. The journey, though, was generally described as pleasant. Edmund arrived with the Enoch train saints at Iowa City, and he was placed in charge of the first handcart company. From there, the immigrants traveled by rail to Iowa City, where they camped for over a month, awaiting completion of their carts. Finally, on June 9th, the great handcart experiment began. With buoyant spirits and an enthusiastic send-off, they set out across Iowa with about 280 people, including a 71-year-old man and the youthful Birmingham Brass Band. Each traveler was only allowed 17 pounds of luggage, clothing, bedding, utensils, and if they had additional baggage, they had to pay for it to be transported later by ox train. Those who couldn't afford the freight costs sold what they could and simply abandoned the rest. Wagons were assigned to the handcart company to haul supplies. There was a tent for each 20 people. The first day, the immigrants traveled only four miles. Then they had to remain idle for the next day while the men had to search for some strayed oxen. With the animals recovered, the company again set out only to have two of the poorly constructed handcarts break down. Repairing carts became a frequent necessity on the trail. On June 14th, a young boy died, soon to be followed by the deaths of other children and adults. The company passed through Newton, Iowa, and near Fort Des Moines on June 23rd. The company was exposed on the plains, and repeatedly racked by wind and rainstorms, they finally arrived at and ferried across the Missouri River on July 8th. They then went to the campground at Florence in the Nebraska Territory, where they spent 10 days repairing carts and getting ready to continue. Initially, their progress had been slow, but eventually their pace increased. They averaged 7 miles a day the first week, almost 13 miles a day the next week, and then they hit their stride before reaching Florence, at which time they were covering about 20 miles a day. A few members of the company dropped out along the way, while others decided to stay in Florence. At Florence, there were 30 Italian saints who joined the company also. Much of the time in Florence was spent making major repairs to the handcarts. They had been built with green lumber, they had no skeins on the axles and no boxes in the hubs. So to minimize wear, the workmen installed tin boxes in the hubs and thick iron hoops around the axles. Finally, they left Florence on July 20th with 55 handcarts, each laden with up to 500 pounds of supplies and luggage. There were also three wagons, three mules, a horse, and six yoke of oxen. They ferried across the Elkhorn River and followed the Loop Fork River for two days before crossing it using a rickety ferry boat. After that, most of the streams had to be forded. Prairie thunderstorms were terrifying. On July 26, lightning killed one man, knocked down two other adults, and burned a boy. The road was sometimes muddy, often sandy and hilly. The men carried the carts across Prairie Creek. Even the wagons had a difficult time crossing it. Later, they crossed the Wood River on a good bridge. 
Hunger, fatigue, fainting, and illness were commonplace. Daily food rations for adults were between one half and one pound of flour plus two ounces of rice, three ounces of sugar, and one half pound of bacon per week. Children got less. At Canesville, Iowa, they purchased two more wagons and some additional livestock. At the Platte River, one of the oxen died that was used to pull the wagons. Captain Ellsworth asked the brethren what could be done and suggested that they place a cow in the team. One of the men, looking past the others, cried out and said, Look, Brother Ellsworth, at that steer on the hill. There stood a large, powerful steer looking down at them. Captain Ellsworth declared that the Lord had provided the animals so they could move on to the mountains. The animal pulled just as well as the others, but when they were within two days of Salt Lake City and had finally met the wagons that had been sent from the valley with provisions, the steer was gone. After searching for several hours, Captain Ellsworth declared, The Lord loaned him to use as long as we needed him. Once they waited more than an hour for a buffalo herd to cross the road. Can you imagine? Hunters killed some of the buffalo for food. Occasionally, they slaughtered one of their beef cattle. On the plains, they cooked with buffalo chips, and they once drank water from a buffalo wallow, which caused widespread diarrhea and dysentery in the camp. On August 8th, 65-year-old Walter Sanders turned up missing, and he wasn't found until the next day, five miles ahead of the company. After traveling on the north side of the Platte River, they forded it at Fort Laramie on August 26th. Then they crossed the North Platte to the north side near present-day Orin, Wyoming, and recrossed it back to the south above Douglas. On August 31st, they reached Deer Creek near present-day Glenrock, Wyoming, where they met five supply wagons that had been sent up from the valley. On September 3rd, they forded the Platte for the last time below the upper crossing at present-day Casper, Wyoming. But the next day, the weather turned cold. That day and the next, it rained and snowed, keeping the company in camp and making it impossible to start fires. Then, to make matters worse, 24 head of cattle strayed, so the men spent a day recovering them. The company reached Devil's Gate and passed by the old Fort Seminole trading post on September 8th. On September 11th, they took the Seminole Cutoff, an alternate route that tracked south of Rocky Ridge, bypassing it and four other crossings of the Sweetwater River. Edmund had taken this cutoff in 1854 when he was traveling east to serve his mission in England. After traveling nearly night and day to overtake them, Daniel MacArthur's handcart company pulled in at almost 11 p.m. and camped beside Ellsworth's company at present-day Alkali Creek on the cutoff. On September 13th at Pacific Springs, they found John Banks' wagon train. It had left Florence 10 days ahead of them. Handcarts regularly arrived in camp long before accompanying wagons, and handcart captains often complained that the wagons slowed them down. On September 18th, they forded the Green River. An eastbound missionary company saw them there as they were descending the ridge to the river. It must have been an impressive sight. They got out of their wagons and they formed a line for the oncoming handcarts to pass through, cheering them with a Hosanna shout. Three days later, Ellsworth's company camped at Fort Bridger. Even through the mountains where they fought cold and thunderstorms, they averaged over 20 miles a day. Proving their fitness, they climbed up and over Big Mountain in less than three hours. They camped at the foot of Little Mountain, 
and the next day, September 26, entered the Salt Lake Valley. There, a welcoming committee headed by Brigham Young met them and treated them to a melon party. While Ellsworth's group feasted on the melons, MacArthur's handcart company pulled up, and the two handcart groups joined the First Presidency, the Nauvoo Brass Band, H.B. Clausen's Company of Lancers, and many local citizens in a grand parade into the city. Hundreds of citizens joined them, and spectators cheered. Mary Ann Jones, who was a member of the company and a future wife of Edmund, later wrote this. We were met in Emigration Canyon by the First Presidency, the brass band, and hundreds of people on foot, on horses, and in carriages. It was a day never to be forgotten. We had reached our goal, traveling on foot all of the way. I'd never left my handcart for day and only rode over two rivers. We waded stream, crossed high mountains, and pulled our carts at times through heavy sand. We had left comfortable homes, fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, and friends, all for our testimony of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and for the privilege of hearing a prophet's voice, and to live with the saints of God. I have never regretted the trip. Sixteen purses in total died. Some had questioned the ability of women and children to travel by handcart. Numerous children walked the whole way, and Ellsworth said that the women withstood the rigors of the trail better than men of a comparable age. The arrival of the first handcart company was major news in Salt Lake City, and Edmund became a bit of a celebrity. On October 10, 1856, the newspaper printed the text of Edmund's speech at the Salt Lake City Bowery, where he recounted in detail his story of the journey. A link to that article is found in the show notes. In less than a week, the tone of discussion surrounding the handcart companies shifted dramatically as Franklin D. Richards arrived in the valley and reported that there were still two companies out on the plains without any support or supplies. The theme of the church's general conference held on October 6 was the rescue of the handcart companies. Edmund Ellsworth played an important role in delivering the message. In the afternoon session of conference, Edmund offered the invocation and sang the song Handcarts Rolling. In the evening session, he gave the benediction. The next day, October 7th, he was one of the main speakers. For the rest of his life, Edmund was honored as one of the original pioneers, fulfilling the promise made by Brigham when Edmund was asked to stay behind the Vanguard Company and operate the ferry at the Platte River. Not long after arriving in the valley, Edmund was set apart to be the senior president of the Third Quorum of Seventy, and he was elected to the city council as well as serving as major of the 2nd Battalion of Infantry of the Nauvoo Legion. On top of that, he served as a first counselor in the bishopric of the Salt Lake City First Ward. In 1857, he went into the lumber business with Joseph A. Young, one of Brigham's sons. He sold his home in Salt Lake, and in 1860, he bought a sawmill in Mill Creek Canyon, which he operated for six years, when he finally sold that for a large tract of land in West Weber, where he moved his family. In 1866, he built a bridge across the Weber River, and two years later, he drove the piles for the bridge across the Ogden River. He contracted with the Union Pacific Railroad to provide the railroad ties which were cut in Weber Canyon. This was prosperous work for Edmund. He reported that he made $3,000 that year and paid $300 in tithing. That was the equivalent of making over $91,000 today. 
The next year, he drove the piles for the railroad bridge over the Weber River, and he took charge of laying the track for the Utah Central Railroad from Ogden to Salt Lake City. He also drove the piles for roads and was the superintendent for the construction of a narrow-gauge railroad from Ogden North to Hot Spring. In 1879, Edmund found himself at the center of a murder trial that scandalized Salt Lake City. Henry Wadman had been killed by Joseph Dudley. After five years of what the newspaper called criminal intimacy between Wadman and Dudley's wife. In the heat of an argument, Wadman told Dudley that in fact he was actually the father of Dudley's children. Dudley confronted his wife, who confirmed the whole affair, and warned Dudley that Wadman intended to kill Dudley and bury him in the sand in order to keep him from telling the story of her shame. Edmund knew Dudley, and he was a distant relative to Wadman. He was the last person to see them together, and he testified that Wadman showed him a pistol the morning of the murder, and he'd had a conversation with Wadman about the whole affair. Edmund informed Wadman that Dudley intended to take his wife back, which enraged Wadman. Edmund left him about 3.30 that afternoon and reported seeing the pistol in his hip pocket. Shortly afterwards, Dudley confronted Wadman, and Dudley was shot to death. Edmund's testimony was key to the prosecution and it was reported breathlessly in the local newspaper. In 1880, at the age of 61, Edmund, like so many present-day retirees, decided to head for warmer weather, and he moved his family to Sholo, Arizona, where he purchased a 40-acre ranch. A little more than four years later, on December 1, 1884, he was arrested for unlawful cohabitation, which was the legal term for polygamy, and he was taken to Prescott, Arizona, under a bond of $2,000. He appeared before Judge Howard and later wrote down the following conversation. How old are you? 66. When did you marry your last wife? In 1856. Do you cohabit with two women at present? No, sir. Have you during the past three years? According to the judge's interpretation, yes, sir. How old is your second wife? 51. How old is her youngest child? 12 years. Do you believe it is right to disobey law? Not constitutional law, Your Honor. Are you to be the judge? Yes, sir. If not, who is? Do you believe the Edmonds Law unconstitutional? Yes, sir. From what standpoint? The Constitutional Amendment Number 10, Your Honor. Do you propose to break this law? No, sir. I have no occasion for so doing. Will you teach others to break this law? I do not propose to answer. If I break the law, I am amenable to the law without respect to promises. After much discussion, the judge said, As a man, I'm in favor of releasing you, but as a judge, I must obey my instruction. I'll be as lenient as possible if you will plea as your counsel advises. Your Honor, if you require anything of me that forces me to compromise my faith, my religion, or my honor, I will not plead guilty. The judge promised not to do so, and Edmund followed his lawyer's advice, pleading guilty to a single count of unlawful cohabitation. The judge asked if he intended to obey the law in the future, and Edmund responded, As I understand it, Your Honor. He was sentenced to pay a fine of $300 within 24 hours, or else serve 60 days in the territorial prison in Yuma. Since he didn't have the money available, he accepted the prison sentence. He kept a daily journal during his imprisonment, and wrote of the poor food, the sleepless nights, the noisy clanking of chains and gates, and the horrible odors, and of the oppressive heat. 
It paints the picture that you might expect of a 19th century territorial prison in Yuma, Arizona in June and July. While in prison, Edmund made himself as useful as possible, spending his time repairing sewing machines and clocks. After his release, he became captivated by the fine fruit and beauty of the city of Mesa, Arizona. So at the end of Edmund's life, he settled in Sholo, Arizona. Okay. And, and I'm told that um, the Ellsworth name is, is or was, to some degree, a relatively prominent name, like in and around uh-huh. Mesa, that he, that he really fell in love with Mesa, the Mesa area. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so have, have you ever, ever been down to Arizona, visit any of the family heritage sites or anything like that? Yes, well, we, I grew up in Snowflake, which is right by Sholo. Oh, okay. So, um, and my grandfather still lives in, in Snowflake and Taylor, which is on the way to um, Sholo. But um, his whole family is down in Mesa, and a lot of my cousins and aunts and uncles are in Mesa. And so our family has kind of stayed in that area, except for us. We ended up traveling due to my dad's job. Mm-hmm. But... Um, yeah, we still, I just went down a few weeks ago to Tempe and Mesa and visited all my family down there. Um, as far as the heritage sites, I have been to a few. We lived in Tucson with my family um, back in 2013, and we were visiting sites, but I also found my other side of my family there too. So we did a lot of research on both sides of the family, a Merrill side and a Ellsworth side. He moved his family to a 40-acre site located one mile northwest of the town center where they raised four acres of grapes, four acres of fruit trees, and 20 acres of alfalfa. They lived in Mesa for six years where Edmund taught Sunday school until 1893 when they traveled to Salt Lake City for the dedication of the Salt Lake Temple on April 6th of that year. Having witnessed the dedication of the Salt Lake Temple, Edmund returned to Sholo to live the remainder of his life. After many years of heart trouble and a lingering illness of about six weeks, Edmund Ellsworth died of heart failure at the age of 74 on December 29, 1893. Today, it's estimated that Edmund Ellsworth has over 10,000 living descendants, with many living in Idaho, Utah, Arizona, and southern Nevada. So what, what was it like when you visited those sites? How, what kind of feelings did you have? Oh, it was so fun. It was fun to find their name on a plaque or just, my kids got so excited. They'd go and look. They'd go and say, okay, what are we looking for? Where are we going? What are we going to do? And we've done a lot of um, looking at headstones too. And they've gotten into looking, um, trying to find our ancestors Mm -hmm. in cemeteries. And that's been super fun. It's kind of a treasure hunt for them. And when they find it, they feel so proud and they feel, they feel a connection. I really feel like they feel a connection. To their ancestors and we talk about what they did and what they were like and I, I really appreciate being able to find their name in history and be able to tell my children about it and if I don't know it's fun to look it up and read the stories about it and hopefully right yeah learn about it together and have the interest can you think of any other traits or characteristics that would kind of define the family I think another one that comes to mind is they're cowboys. <laughs> That's kind of what we, as I think of my grandfather, he is a cowboy through and through. He okay. loves horses and he did a lot of ranching. 
and he talks a lot about ranching and doing farms. And still, my grandpa, he's almost, I think he's almost 85. Anyway, somewhere in there. And he is still trying to build a cattle ranch (laughs) on his own, by himself. And so he'll fall down. He falls down probably twice a week and just totally beats himself up. And he's out the next day building this ranch and (laughs) he's just tough. And he's, he's a dreamer. They, he always has a vision of something and he just goes for it. He's, I don't know, they're, I would just say they're, they're cowboys and farmers and lovers of land and nature. In fact, my grandpa with only one arm and one leg, he tried to become a school teacher at one point and he just couldn't handle it. He, he just couldn't handle being inside. He wanted to work with the land and be outside. And so he got a job, I think I was on a cattle ranch, just being out where he loves to be. So it's definitely in our blood to be out. And I think that carries on with me and my siblings too. We really enjoy being out in nature and getting in the dirt and growing things and having animals. Um, Jody, who are some of your heroes? Oh, my heroes? Yeah. Well, of course, the savior. He's my number one hero. And then after that, I, I really do look up to my family. I, my mom and dad are really amazing people. And I think it's due to their parents who were really amazing people. So my dad's side, they just pioneer her heritage and stock. And my mom's side, her parents were found by missionaries. So I love coming from both sides and having the rich heritage of both. And I love hearing the stories of both sides that are can be quite different and yet both were really great people both sides were had really great people in them i just think anyone who in our and in my history in my ancestry that has lived a rich life and passed on great things to their children is my hero because that that's all you can really ask you can clearly see that i have a lot to learn still <laughs> well, that's okay. That's okay. But so let me ask you this: so you grew up knowing that you had this pioneer heritage, right? Yeah, for the most part. I, as a little girl, I don't know how much I recognized it, but I, I did know that I had pioneer heritage. Okay. How do you think that that um, that growing up with that understanding of your of your family roots has influenced you, your life and your family and made you who you are? I think it had a lot to, to, to do with it, but I think I remember thinking, well, when things are tough, I had pioneers that had had it rougher than I had had it, and I could I could do it. Also, having moved 14 times, I felt like a pioneer, <laughs> and I felt like I would I would just say, here's our pioneer trek, and remembered my grandpa. I truly would. I just think, okay, well, this is. They just picked up and moved everything they had, and they they made do, and they were happy, and if they can do it, so can I. And I tried to pass it on to my children, and that's what we would say before they get out of the car. Okay, how are we gonna be like Grandpa so and so? And they would they would say we're gonna we're gonna be tough. We're gonna realize that it, life's not as hard as we think it is. Or anyway, we all, one of my um, Ellsworth grandpas only had one arm and one leg, and so that was one that we talked a lot about also. Okay. How we could be tough like Grandpa Ellsworth. So the Ellsworth line to us is tough. 
I think they all came from really tough stock. I think Edmund was tough, and I think all of his sons after him, including my grandpa and my dad, have been tough people. Tough men that are willing to work hard, really hard, and to not give up and to do the best that they could. So I don't know, I don't know what else I could tell you about the family, but I feel honored and blessed to be one of um, Edmund's granddaughters. And it will be really fun to get to know him and see him again. I clearly I'm going to have to study up a little so I'm not this <laughs> when I talk to him. But I think it will be really fun to talk to him and to tell him thank you for all that he's done. This episode of Hearts of the Fathers was narrated, written, and produced by Derek Rowley. Thanks to Tanner Ibsen, who is my hardworking research assistant, production intern, and my favorite NASCAR fan. I couldn't have done it without him. Special thanks also to my friend and neighbor, Terry DeWeese, as well as my wife and sweetheart, Janine Rowley, for doing the voiceovers. Jody Ellsworth Behunin was so patient and gracious to give me her time to be interviewed for a podcast she'd never heard of before, so thanks, Jody. Music was by The Seasons, and special effects was by Soundstripe. If you have any questions or comments, please drop me an email at heartsofthefatherspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, we invite you to share this episode with your friends using your favorite social media platforms. Please go to iTunes and give us a positive review. That will really help a lot. And check out our webpage at heartsofthefatherspodcast.com, where you can check out the show notes and participate in any online discussion. We really would appreciate your, your comments and participation. See you next time.